Hey, good morning, everybody. So good to have you with us. Um, I am so glad you could join us for the greatest day in the church calendar. That is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Is it okay if I roll my sleeves up? It's already getting hot. It's cold out there, but it's hot in here. This tie is halfway through. It's going to be gone. But I want to, as you should expect on a day like this, I want to preach on the resurrection of Jesus Christ for two reasons. One, so those of us who are believers, who have believed on this truth, who know it with all of our hearts, can remember it and by the end of the day can jump, immerse ourselves in thanksgiving and praise so that we can worship together so that we can remember what we were saved from and saved to, so that we can remember that our hope lies not in ourselves, but in God who gave us Jesus Christ as a sacrifice. But I also want to preach on the resurrection for another group of people in here. Those of you who maybe don't know Jesus in that way, you've never known him in a personal way, you've maybe heard a few things about him, maybe you've even dabbled in religion, but you don't know him. I want to preach this sermon today the next few minutes to give you a chance to respond. And I will, at the end of today, be calling on you to make a decision, which may be, I hope, one of the best decisions of your life. But before I do that, I want to speak and preach, just so you know where I'm preaching from. I want to read from John chapter 20. I'm going to be reading a few different sections from John chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, it should be on the screen, but this is John 20, verses 1 through 2, and 11 through 13, just to set the scene of what we're about to jump into. It starts with a character by the name of Mary Magdalene, and as you know, the resurrection just happened in the story, and she walks up to the scene. She doesn't know what's going on. She looks in, and this is what happens, starting in verse 1. It says, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark... Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Mary was standing outside of the tomb crying and as she wept, verse 11, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied. And I don't know where they have put him. Let's stop right there. This is God's word. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, I ask as we immerse ourselves in the gospel, the gospel would transform our hearts to respond to you. Thank you that you have done everything that is needed for us to be able to respond to your salvation, to your power, to your grace, and we ask that you would bless us now by the Holy Spirit to that end and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1983, a man, an art dealer by the name of Gianfranco Bacina approached the Getty Museum with a marble sculpture. He said it was from the 6th century B.C. and was what was known as a kuras, a particular type of statue that's hard to come by. They generally look like, kurases look like a male youth standing, very tall, usually with their arms dangling down, standing straight up with a straight posture. And on the significance of such, find, uh, such a find, 
the writer Malcolm Gladwell explains, there are only 200 kuras in existence. And they're usually fragmented and damaged by archaeological digs. But this one was almost perfectly preserved. It was almost seven feet tall, and it had a kind of light-colored glow that set it apart from other ancient works. It was an extraordinary find. The Getty moved slowly and looked it over with painstaking detail, and 14 months later, agreed to purchase the statue to the tune of $9 million dollars. Following year, they put it on display to much fanfare. The day of, the New York Times wrote a front page spread speaking of its acclaim. Months later, the Getty's curator of antiquities, Marion True, wrote a long, glowing account of the museum's acquisition for an art journal, the Burlington Magazine. And I quote, Now standing erect without external support, his closed hands fixed firmly to his thighs. The kuras expresses the confident vitality that is characteristic of the best of his brothers. God or man, he embodies all the radiant energy of the adolescence of Western art. <laughs> it's just one problem. It was a fake. At least that's what some of, you know, the world's greatest experts on Greek sculptures would later say. No big deal. To this day, the subject of controversy. But what do you do after you just spent all of your life savings on a forgery? You put that thing up in your museum. And if you were to go to the Getty Museum in Los Angeles today, it would be there. Only at the very bottom would be this very simple label. Greek, about 530 B.C., or a modern forgery. What does it feel like to spend $9 million on a fake? Well, you can ask Marion True, who after seeing the evidence for the first time commented, I feel like someone kicked me. Or as Alexander, the child in that famous uh, story would say much more clearly, it has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. <laughs> I'm just going to get to the point. Have you ever had one of those days where you just felt like you were going to fall apart? Now, that's obviously an extreme example, but you have your own, don't you? Have you ever experienced a day where you just felt like your life was falling apart? And I want you to ask, at least in the quietness of your own mind, what was it that caused that? What would make you fall apart? Perhaps you already have. Now, maybe it's not a, a huge mistake like buying the, the Getty Kuros, but maybe you made a really big mistake sometime in the past. Or maybe right now your life is a series of mistakes piled on to themselves, and you are just now starting to fall apart. Maybe you feel yourself about to fall apart. Maybe it's not a mistake. Maybe your worst fear is starting to materialize. Maybe something happened in your past or in your present that's making you doubt your faith. Maybe it was college. Maybe you have a really special relationship that is starting to unravel right now before your very eyes. Maybe you're disillusioned for whatever reason, disappointed for whatever reason. Maybe it's something in the future. Maybe you are right now on the precipice of something that you don't know what to expect. And you notice in all of those examples and the endless list of things that we could chuck into that list, 
There are different things for different people. Different things make different people fall apart. But I want to argue today that underneath all of those external circumstances is the same thing. Whether you are a museum that just wasted $9 million on a forgery or you are a little toddler who just dropped their ice cream cone on the sidewalk and is just melting down. We tend to fall apart when we find out that we are not as in control of our lives as we originally thought. We know that the world is out of control. We know other people are out of control. But it's almost a basic tenet of our life to look at ourselves and to say, but regardless of all that's happening out there, I can control this. I want you to take whatever it is that you felt in that moment or are feeling now and sense Mary Magdalene resonating with you. You have to understand, after what we just wrote, that she's not just crying because a loved one died. She's crying because her dreams just got shattered. You have to understand her background and that of all of the disciples, her world and expectations that was Jesus. She trusted him. She loved him. But she had expectations. They all did. They weren't necessarily bad people. They just had expectations that Jesus was was going to fulfill. And the disciples' story, no matter which angle you look at it, is one of control. The disciples' story was built on them being in control of their lives. Sure, they saw the Messiah, they loved Jesus, they wanted to follow him, they adored him, they worshipped him, but it was because of what they thought he was going to do. He was going to come in and sack Rome, destroy their enemies, and all of a sudden these Galilean fishermen whose names weren't even on the radar of society would be elevated. Isn't that why we see in some of the gospel stories them always fighting for, for authority? Arguing about who's the greatest? What about that one time that Jesus actually labels two of them the sons of thunder? Remember why? Because James and John actually got their mom to ask Jesus to give them a special place under his command when his kingdom came. They had their mom ask for special favors. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, when you sack Rome, when you take over the world, when you make this place amazing, can we be on your right and on your left hand? (laughs) Of course, when the Messiah didn't sack Rome, but was before their eyes sacked by Rome, their dreams fell apart. Perhaps you've encountered a disaster, or maybe not even something that big, maybe just a disappointment or a setback. It could be anything that triggers it, and you all of a sudden feel the same way too. I am not in control of my life, and you fall apart. Maybe that's why we always go into damage control when our lives are falling apart. I I can't, I don't know if this is what she's doing, but I can't escape just this internal dialogue that Mary is having and what she actually says to people in verse 13. They have taken away the Lord at the end of verse 13. I don't know where they have put him and my personal favorite, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. As if her retrieving a dead body and shuffling it into another tomb is going to fix what is wrong. 
And don't we do that with our petty ways of trying to put our lives back together? We're just shuffling bodies from tomb to tomb. We do this very same thing anytime we think something like this. If I do this, then this will happen. I'm not talking about normal cause and effect relationships, right? Like if you study, then you get good grades. Yes. If you work hard, then you make money. Yes. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about the issues of the heart, the things that we try to do or say to ourselves, if I do enough of this, I will be okay. I will put myself back together. List all of the reasons and the things that we say. If I work extra hard to be good, then God will accept me and I'll be fine. If I just busy myself, because truly I'm not fine, I will hide from the pain of not being fine. And maybe if I hide from it, if I deny it, it just will not be there anymore. If I hide my problems from others, then they'll, they'll see me as a, a, the better, a better person, the type of person I envision myself to be. If I look to relationships or substance abuse or work or play or any list of different things that we we crowd ourselves around, then I will find satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness. You're just shuffling dead bodies around. That's why this verse, verse 15, is almost like a mirror showing not Mary's only, but our true weakness. Look at how comical this is. Mary, I I don't even know what state of mind she must have been in or what she was trying to think, but what did, she ha- what did she hope to accomplish? First of all, it was Jesus she was talking to. She didn't recognize him. She thought it was the gardener, and she accuses him of taking Jesus' body. And then she's reasoning with this supposed thief. Well, if you bring back the body or tell me where the body is, I will bring it back to its rightful place. What was she thinking? Probably not. She was grieving. None of her solutions would accomplish anything anyway. Her solutions were simply not good enough. It's the same with you and me. Our solutions are never good enough for the deepest issues of the human heart. But it's all we got. All we can muster up is to say things like, I'll try harder, I'll do better, I'll hide. I'll take up a hobby. I'll make more money. That's all we have. And therein, brothers and sisters, lies the problem of all of humanity. Your greatest problem is not that you are losing control of a situation or your life. Your greatest problem is that you ever thought that you had control of your life to begin with. The Bible, without mincing words, calls that simply sin. Our long-standing desire to do things on our own, apart from God's intervention. And all it takes is one setback to blow away that illusion. Some of you have had a setback like that, and you're reeling. And others of you have not. In fact, perhaps some of you all the way at the beginning of this sermon said, you know what, my life isn't in control, so I can completely check out of this Easter sermon because it's not relevant to me. You are the person that needs to hear this the most precisely because you are under an illusion that you've got it all together. 
The difference isn't that some people have control of their lives and others don't. It's that those who end up finding the presence of God are the very ones who recognize that they're not in control of their lives and they're just sick and tired of trying to be. You know what a better solution is for you than to just try harder? The gospel of the resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know what the gospel says to you? First of all, the gospel means good news. You know why it's good news for you and me? Let me tell you. The gospel is not, hey, you've got this. Don't fall apart. The gospel, good news, best thing you've ever heard. Stop messing up. The gospel is not that. As if God were some angry legalistic parent screaming down at you, try harder. The gospel is not, don't fall apart. The gospel is, you fell apart, awesome. Because you're in a perfect spot right now to meet a person who never falls apart. I'm not here this morning to tell you to not fall apart. I'm telling you to meet somebody who will never fall apart on you. When Jesus rose from the dead, he wasn't just showing humanity a parlor trick. Like, look at me, this is awesome. He was making a statement that there is nothing in the universe or under the cosmos that I cannot handle. You think your problems are big? I conquered death. For Jesus to rise from the dead means that he has the power over death and every other symptom of decay that flows from it. He has a power over your sin. He has a power over death. He has power and control over the whole storyline of human history. And he can certainly handle your life. He's certainly worthy of giving your life too. And if he can conquer death and sin, he can forgive you of yours. The risen Jesus was standing right in the middle of Mary's mess. Let me read to you verse 14. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus. Best line I've ever seen in my life. It was Jesus. He's standing in Mary's mess, into the mess of humanity. He stands in your mess with the ability to do what you never could. Bring life into the chaos. Bring life into the mess. But I want us to end on one little problem that perhaps you're facing right now that Mary also did. I want to read the rest of verse 15 through uh, 14 and 15. It says, She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. I want you to think about this for a moment. That just as it was true for Mary, it is true for you and I. For many of you in this room perhaps. The resurrection already happened. Everything that needs to happen to upset the kingdom of darkness, to reverse the curse in the world, to upset death and to bring in the kingdom of God has been decisively done at the cross and outside of that tomb. It's already finished. Then why aren't some of your lives changed by it? 
because you didn't recognize him. Because perhaps some of you are still living your lives trying to polish empty tombs by being a better person, exert more control when the risen Jesus is standing right behind you asking you questions. And you know what? You might not recognize him. You might have been embroiled in your own life trying to make sense of your own life by yourself this whole time with Jesus just tapping you on the shoulder. And it's as if Jesus is saying to Mary and to you and me, it's okay. Even though some of us go to our deathbed sometimes so stubborn and willful, eagerly trying to prove that we are in control, he goes after us even to our deathbeds. And this Jesus doesn't just rise from the dead and change the universe. He rises from the dead and offers personal invitations to individual people like Mary and like you. Look at what he says. She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. Verse 16, Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabbi, which is Hebrew for teacher. And the whole story ends right there. You know why I love this little verse? Because it tells us that one word from Jesus Christ can change your life forever. Mary. There in the middle of chaos and a big fat mess, Jesus shows up and personally speaks to a crying woman. And the Bible tells us that he still speaks to individual people today. He does it by the power of his Holy Spirit. And perhaps he's speaking to some of you today. I'm actually going to ask the worship team to come up as we transition into a time of worship. But before we do, I want to point out a couple types of people in this room. One, there's, a type, there's two types of people in this room. One, your life is falling apart. And right now, perhaps you are so aware of your weaknesses and you need someone to take control of your life. Jesus is tapping you on the shoulder right now saying, hey, And he's calling you by name. There's another type of person in this room whose life is not falling apart. And you think you've got it all together. But I just want to ask that underneath that veneer, if you're also saying, I'm tired. I'm tired of faking it. I'm tired of trying to pretend that I'm okay. I'm tired of putting on this surface veneer for people to see. Inside, I can't do this anymore. And to the two of you, I want to challenge your sense of independence today. Because you weren't made to be in the driver's seat. You were meant to be a worshiper and a follower of a good king. And Jesus is that king, and he proved to be when he died for your sins and your mistakes and rose from the dead. And now I think for some of you, perhaps by his Holy Spirit, he's calling you by name. 
John, Derek, Amy, whatever it is, you can hear him. You might be saying, well, what is he calling me to do? Funny thing you ask. After he talks to Mary and Joanna and all of the women at the tomb and Peter and later doubting Thomas, he speaks to, he visits them in person all together. He then gets them together and he says one thing to them in John chapter 21, verse 19. Simple response, follow me. If you believe that your life is out of control and you weren't meant to be the one in control of it and you want to follow someone who has the best heart and the best plan and the best design who loves you and gave up his own life to find you. Didn't stay dead, but rose to prove that he is capable. His response, his call for you to respond is to follow me. Today, the offer that was laid out before those 12 disciples is laid out before you this morning. You may say, well, what if what if I follow him and he tells me to do something later that I don't like? Oh, he will. <laughs> Say, well, what if life gets harder because I'm following Christ and not easier? Oh, it, it will. Say, well, what if I have to give up something that I really value and that I really love? You will. Jesus gave you a trailer for that. He said, if you want to follow me, I want you to give everything up. But you know what he does? He gives you a parable and he says, it's like finding a treasure in the field. Whatever you are in possession of does not compare to what I'm giving you now. Some of you are saying, well, what is he giving me now? What do I get out of following Jesus? You get Jesus. You get the source of all that you have longed for, everything that has been missing in your life, everything that you are driving to find is found in the field where Jesus lay and where he was uh, risen again. I didn't come here to tell you how you can get rich, find surface creature comforts, get a boyfriend or find a job. I came here to tell you that there is a God who lives, who made you, who loves you, who desires you, and there is a way to get to know him. And even though the circumstances in your life might be falling apart, it is possible for you and your soul to be kept together. So I'm going to shut up. And I want to offer you a chance to close that gap between you and God. If you have never thought of Jesus in this way, if you have never known him on a personal level, I'm speaking to you. I'm also speaking to people who are Christians or who maybe one time back when in 1987, you made a decision just like this, but you fell off the wayside and now you're racked with guilt and shame. Jesus is still tapping you on the shoulder. So whether you've never done this before in your life or whether you've done it 10 times, the grace of God is endless for you, man. So I'm going to do something. If God is already moving on your heart, he's already doing the work. I have nothing to do. But I found that when we move our bodies, it crystallizes something, that what God is already doing in our hearts. 
So in a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to do something bold. If you want for the first time or for the second time, to make that decision in your life, I don't know what this is going to mean for me, but I know one thing. Jesus is everything, and I want to follow him. I want to repent of my sins and I want to repent of trying to be in control and I want to follow this Messiah wherever he would lead me. I'm going to ask you to stand up in a couple seconds and to allow what God is doing on your heart to crystallize in your body. You say, well, that's embarrassing. No, it's not. Look around you. Surrounded by a bunch of people who have lost control, whether they realize it or not. Identify with Jesus for the first time right now on the count of three. You ready? One, two, three. Stand. Yeah. Amen. Amen. See you up in the top. Praise God. See you in the back, brother. See the four of you in the back. Amen. See the three of you, brother. All the way in the back. Yeah, come on. Let's be excited. You may be seated for a second. One more type of person. You're a Christian. You've been beat up. You've been beating yourself up. And you have all but quit on Jesus because you think that Jesus only loves you because of what you can do for him. I want to call you to recommit your life. And I'm not calling you to recommit your life to trying harder. I'm I'm calling you to recommit your life to abiding in a resin Jesus Christ. And from this point on, you're not going to quit anymore. You understand? You're not going to quit anymore because Jesus is going to sustain you. But for you, I want you to do this for yourself. And before your brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to see that this isn't just your thoughts or the, or the devil or some thing in your mind. This is Jesus moving on you. So on the count of three, I want all of you to stand. You ready? One, two, three. Do it. Recommitting. Hallelujah. time of worship through song through lyrics and through praise for all of you that stood up this is what I want you to do I want you to slow down you know God is moving on your heart now I just want you to marinate in that movement we're going to sing about what God has done for you and I don't want you to be rushed I want you to enjoy this but as you're worshiping at any point this is between you and God you can cry out to him 
and you can repent of your sins, the sin of trying to be in control of your life, in control of all of your stuff. And in that moment, you give it all to him. And he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. In fact, he he wants to take you on the journey of a lifetime. And on April 17th, we'll do baptisms on the beach. And I hope that I see you there. If you have any questions or you want to pray, there will be prayer teams to the left and to the right that can pray with you for anything. If you are saved, you've made this decision, there are sacraments to the right and to the left down here, also on the mezzanine floor. All of those things are available. Right now, let's glory in a God who continues to save, who moves and speaks your name personally. He's here today. Let's worship and magnify him. Holy Spirit, come. Jesus' name.